The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Bear Creek Church. If you can, please open your Bibles to the book of uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. So 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Last time I was, I was up here sharing with you, uh, we, we took a look at the first half of this book, or this chapter, excuse me, and so we're going to just kind of continue where we left off last time. If you, don't, uh, if you don't already have one, I do encourage you to uh, have a, a copy of the Bible in front of you, whether that's on your, your phone or your tablet, or if you didn't bring one, there's a table in the back that has, has some, but I would think it's helpful to be able to see these words uh, for yourself, so... Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now would you please pray with me? Father God, you are good, you are just, you are holy. Lord, we ask that you would help us now to hear your word with ears ready to listen, with a humble heart ready to repent, and a mind ready to grow in our understanding of you. Help us to approach your word with reverence and a desire that we conform to you and your word and not that you or your word conform to us. We thank you for the time of worship that we've already experienced and worshiping you in song and in prayer and our giving. We now ask your blessing on this time of worship through the preaching of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You might often hear me talk about the difference between justification and sanctification. And on occasions, I've attempted to try to explain the two. And the reason I do that is I think that we often, we can confuse them. We can assume that justification is really acts of sanctification and vice versa. So I want to make clear that we're talking today about sanctification. How we grow more and more like Christ in our Christian walk. So the first chapter of 1 Peter is overwhelmingly a chapter of hope. This hope is our hope of salvation in Christ, which comes to us only through the election of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the sanctification of the Spirit. Looking back quickly at the first part of chapter 1, which we covered several weeks back, verse 3 says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
from the dead. And in verse 4, it's our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's being kept in heaven for us. And verse 5, we are being kept for it, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The resurrection of Christ guarantees this hope, which includes an imperishable inheritance of eternal life and its blessings guarded by God. Then we get to verses 10 through 12, when we see that the prophets predicted this salvation and looked forward to the greater day in which we now live. Having established the greatness of this hope, Peter begins to tell us how we must live in light of it. So he already told us in verses 6 through 7 that we must rejoice in our hope even while we suffer. Because by our sufferings, our faith in the hope of salvation is purified. So today, let's look together at verse 13 where we read, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our text, beginning with verse 13, starts with the word therefore. This is an important transition. It's saying, therefore, concerning your salvation, this salvation that is is a gift of God, that God caused you to be born again to a living hope because of God's great mercy, This salvation that impacts our view of life and suffering because we have an eternal perspective. Because of this, prepare your minds for action. Or the the literal translation is girding up the loins of your mind, which may sound odd to our 21st century ears. But to to the people that Peter was specifically speaking to, this had real meaning. Both men and women tended to wear long, flowing robes. Even soldiers commonly wore robes. When it came time to go into battle, however, the soldiers were hindered by the robes from moving with agility. So they they girded up their robes. They hitched them up at the knee and then secured them with a belt. And then their legs were free to run into battle. They were not hindered or distracted, or limited in their ability. We can think of the expression today of of rolling up your sleeves, meaning like, let's get to work. Peter uses this simple metaphor to challenge his readers to prepare their minds for deep thinking. Prepare for action. Be ready. Gird up the loins of your mind. Engage your mind. In the book of Matthew, we are told... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We are to love God with all of our mind. It's not just an emotional relationship, but we use our brains, we think, we reason. Our text keeps going. Not only does it say prepare our minds for action, but it says, and being sober-minded. Being sober-minded or or clear-headed. The word usually means to be sober, balanced, or self-controlled. Peter wants us to be realistic and clear-minded. 
The opposite of sobriety is drunkenness, folly, and lack of self-discipline. So Peter is saying, be clear-headed, not distracted by things of the world, but focused and controlled, clear-minded. So verse 13 is saying, prepare your mind for action. Have a clear head that's focused. But focused on what? Well, we keep going with verse 13. Peter's not done. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the key to the passage. We are to set our hope fully on the grace of God. Peter wants our full attention on Jesus, through whom God gives his grace. His emphasis falls not on the subjective feeling of hope. It's not on the intensity of our hope, but on the object and direction of our hope. As a Christian, we should hope in the grace of Christ to be revealed. Two things to to note about this verse. First, though the previous verses make it clear that the hope of salvation is already ours, there is still more grace to come. At the revelation, it says, or return of Jesus, we will experience redemption in the fullest sense. Even though Christ has already purchased our redemption, once and for all, its full application will be completed only in our glorification. Second, our present possession of this hope is to result in our acting in certain ways as we wait to be glorified. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, and so we must take steps to make sure that we are free from anything that would not make us soberly and diligently wait for the grace that is yet to come. This we can do by identifying those things in our lives that we have made into idols, whether they're material goods, earthly success, relationships, or anything else in which we have placed our hope for security. Once identified, we must work to remove them by repenting and by seeking accountability from the people of God. One more reason why not neglecting the gathering together of the saints on a Sunday morning is so important to us. It's clear that Peter wants his readers to live in unshakable hope. When he says in verse 13 that you should hope fully by preparing your minds for action, gird up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded, he's telling us how to maintain hope. Be awake and nimble on your mental feet to trace out every reason for hope that God gives and spot every hope-destroying untruth. The mind is a means of hope. We set our hope fully on the grace of God by preparing our minds, engaging our minds, being sober-minded, thinking clearly. Use your minds and remember what God has already done for you. So it, it begs the question, where is your hope? How we How we conduct ourselves reveals whom we are dedicated and where our focus lies. How we respond to life's events 
reveals what we have put our confidence in. What we think matters. What we allow to enter into our mind matters. We are saved. We are born again. But that's not just a get out of jail free card. Because of what God has done in response to what God has already done, we are to be obedient. Let's look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Verse 2 of chapter 1 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And in verse 17 it says, and if you call on him as Father, he is Father, we are children. As obedient children, the text says, or it might more accurately read, as children of obedience. We are to be obedient. Sometimes I think we, we struggle with obedience because we're not convinced that that is better. We're not convinced that that is for our joy, that that is for our good. We think of obedience as God taking away those things that, that bring us joy. Obedience to God is for our good, for our protection. He gives good gifts. We can trust him. If you are a parent, you get a glimpse of this, that the obedience that we want from our children, we want it because we know it's what's best for them. But we also recognize the difference of obedience with a glad heart and grumbling obedience. We grumble when we don't actually believe that this is what's best for us. But if our trust is in God and in his sovereignty and that his plan for us is for our good, if we really believe that, then we can have a glad heart in our obedience. So a good self-check might be if we are grumbling with God about what his word commands or says, is it that we don't actually believe that it's what's best for us? We are called to be obedient. Sometimes we can think, you know, because of grace, our obedience, it's not important. We can think, you know, I'm saved. I'm a Christian, so I'm forgiven. It doesn't really matter what I do. We are called to obedience. Yes, we may fall short of obedience. Grace covers when we fall short. But we offend grace. We take it for granted when we see it as to fulfill what we don't even attempt. Grace is God's mercy to us. It's not a tool for us to wield. When we read scripture, we see verses that say, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments. These are just a few of the verses that speak on this. Looking again at 1 Peter in verse 14 of our text. Do not be conformed to the passions of 
of your former ignorance. Do not look like you did before. Do not go back to that life, but but look ahead. The things that, that used to be attractive, the more we grow in Christ, the more we grow more and more like Christ, those things don't have the same attraction anymore. We were ignorant then, so don't try to look like we did before. We see this warning a lot in Scripture, which maybe is an indication of how strong the temptation can be. We have to be vigilant and on guard, have our minds sharp, be steeped in the word and in the fellowship of believers to help us to guard against this, this temptation to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. This past Wednesday morning in our men's group, we, we touched on this for a few minutes, and somebody referred to the verse in Proverbs, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Not many have that on a pillow, I would imagine. Obviously, we, we find that verse a little gross, and we should. But here's the thing. If that's all we know, if we're surrounded by people doing things that are detestable, ungodly, doing the things that God hates, how long until we start to think, well, you know, maybe it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Maybe I should at least try it. Our text says, do not be conformed. This word also occurs in the New Testament only at Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It was to pattern one's actions or life after. It reminds these Christians that obedience to God and holiness of life are radically different from a life that follows natural desires where they lead. Paul saw our sanctification as taking place as a result of a mindset that is different from the mindset of the world. Paul was writing of a mindset of nonconformity, and Peter is saying the same thing here in our text. When we are saved... We have a new mind. We see things differently. We think differently. So Peter is reminding that ours is not a passive faith. But we engage our minds. We prepare our minds for action. So what or who, you sur- who do you surround yourself with? Are they things or people that encourage your personal holiness? Or do they entice you to treasure things of this world? Let's now look at verses 15 through 16 of our text. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So that... That therefore, at the beginning of verse 13, is saying, therefore, because of all the blessings, do these things. Set your hope fully on future grace and be holy. 
God says, I want you to hope confidently for grace in the future, and I want you to work diligently for holiness in the present. Let me ask you a question. It's a question that may sound straightforward, but it may be a question that you've not put a lot of thought into before. The question is this. Why did God save you? Assuming for a moment that you belong to Jesus by faith, though you once were dead in your sins and trespasses, though you were by nature a child of wrath, God saved you. By his great mercy, he he caused you to be born again. Why? Why did God save you? You may think about what he did or when he did it, but why? Why did he go, why did God do all of that? Maybe that's a question you've not considered before. Maybe that, that seems like a hard question. And the good news is, is that in one respect, it's an easy question because there's more than one right answer. You might say, love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. You might say, glory. Ephesians says that all things are for the praise of his name. So you might say, love or glory, and those would be correct. But let me give you another reason. Just as biblical, just as important. God saves you that you might be holy. Let's take a look at two passages. If if you have a Bible, feel free to turn with me. The first one I want to look at is is Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 21. Colossians 1, verse 21 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In order to present you holy. Now flip over to the book of Ephesians, also chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and blameless before him. God saved you so that you might be holy. J.I. Packer said, in reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we were justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. When God called you from darkness to light, he called you to be holy. So what does this mean? 
This means that he didn't just save you and then move on for you to just keep living the same life, maybe cleaned up a bit. So what is holiness? Maybe when you think of holiness, you think of the Puritans. Maybe when you think of Puritans, you think, oh yeah, yeah, they were holy. You know, they prayed four hours a day on their knees. They were in the Word for another 12 hours and they'd spend six hours serving the poor and then family devotions. They'd sleep for like 15 minutes and then they'd do it all over again. Is that what you think when you think of the Puritans? I do. Or maybe you might hear Puritan and imagine this perpetual party pooper who has a sneaking suspicion that somebody somewhere is having a good time and they're going to put a stop to it. But the Puritans were not like that. They enjoyed God's good gifts while at the same time pursuing godliness or holiness as among God's greatest gifts. So what is holiness then? I found J.I. Packer helpful here when he said, Consider first the word itself. Holiness is a noun that belongs with the adjective holy and the verb sanctify, which means to make holy. He says, it is a pity in one way that we have to draw on two word groups in English to cover what is a single word group in both Hebrew and Greek, but the word holify would be so ugly that maybe we should be glad it does not exist. Holy in both biblical languages, means separated and set apart for God, consecrated and made over to him. In its application to people, God's holy ones or saints, the word implies both devotion and assimilation. Devotion in the sense of living a life of service to God, Assimilation in the sense of imitating, conforming to, and becoming like the God one serves. For Christians, this means taking God's moral law as our rule and God's incarnate Son as our model. This is where our analysis of holiness must start. Holiness means separated from the world and set apart for God. Now, in a sense, as we saw back in verse 3, in justification, we are already set apart. We have been called. We are born again. We are are set apart. So holiness, as it has to do with justification, that's already been done. You've been made holy. Holiness, as it has to do with sanctification, is ongoing. We are growing more and more like Christ. God is the the premise for holiness, meaning that's one of the reasons we ought to be holy, because we belong to him. But he is not only the premise for holiness, but he is the pattern. Again, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. When we think of this idea of holiness, or being holy as I am holy, and many of us tend to get uncomfortable with this. Some of you may have read R.C. Sproul's great book, The Holiness of God. And if you have, you may remember that one of the points that he makes in that book is that 
In, Eng- in the English language, when we want to call attention to something that's particularly important to give it emphasis, there are different ways that we can do that in print. We can underline a word, we can italicize it, we can put it in bold. But in the Old Testament, they had another technique to call attention to something's particular importance. It was a simple technique of verbal repetition. R.C. Sproul said that there's only one attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There's only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in a superlative degree from the mouths of angels where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy or even that he is holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 or love, 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 or justice, 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 or even wrath, 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 but that he is holy, holy, holy. So we get the impact and the importance of that word. And we look back on our own lives and we can't imagine that we could in any way call ourselves holy. We know that we are, we are so far from it. Now in thinking on this, I think that we can tend towards a few thoughts that can get us into trouble. We can think that this is, this is impossible. God is holy, I am not. This is an unattainable goal. And if that's required, then I don't have a chance. So we give up. It may create a crisis of faith that actually causes us to walk away. Or we take a similar attitude as we just said and think, why even try? What's the point? And say, well, you know, there's grace. I'll just, I'll just rely on that and not even try. But we can't forget what our text says about obedience. We are called to obedience. We are to be obedient and we are told to be holy. The other thing we might do is we may, we may make light of it. Just gloss over it. We can say, you know, that, that's a good rule of thumb. But come on, it's not realistic. We can be far too comfortable with mediocrity. Yet as we saw in Colossians and Ephesians, we are saved to be holy. Our text, our text here says to be holy, to be set apart. Are we set apart from the world? And notice what the text says, in all your conduct. Are we set apart? Or do we look just like the world, but maybe just a PG version of it? We say things like, well, I'll try to refrain from at least saying the really big curse words. You know, I'll I'll try to be a good person. I'll make sure to apologize after I offend people with my jokes. If a man is holy, he is set apart from the world for God. It's interesting that Peter's approach to holiness, the main theme of this particular section is not, you hear some rules or a to-do list. Now, now go do these. Peter says, here's what's already been done for you. So live. You were saved that you might be holy, so, so live like it. Be obedient. Love the things that God loves. Hate the things that God hates. 
We are to be set apart. Now, that doesn't mean that we become hermits, which, let's be honest, that can be tempting at times. But it does mean that we may be odd or seem odd to the world. We're not going to fit in. We don't fit into this world. In the book of Luke, we are told, from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will divide father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The gospel will divide and make us set apart. And to unbelievers, we will seem odd. Now to be very clear, this topic of holiness or personal holiness, I am not standing up here as an expert. In preparing this message, I found this passage challenging and convicting. So as John Calvin once said, it would be best for a preacher to fall and break his neck as he mounts the pulpit if he is not himself going to be the first to follow God in living his own message. So I've made it up here, so that's a start. Now this idea of being seen as odd, I'll be honest with you. I like to be liked. I don't necessarily like it when people don't like me. So I have to, I have to fight that temptation. As, money, as funny as it may sound, since I'm standing up here in front of all of you, I'm not someone who likes to be the center of attention. To have all eyes on me. I have to fight that temptation. So to be set apart, to be seen as odd, what does that mean? What does that look like? We've talked in the past about suffering. We approach suffering differently. Differently from the world. We grieve differently. First Thessalonians says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. You may not grieve as others others do who have no hope. No, as our text says, our hope is set fully on the grace of God. Maybe you, you stand out. You're set apart because at work you don't participate in gossip like everyone else. You're not complaining about the job like others are. You're not grumbling about how little you are paid or how little work the boss does. Maybe you seem odd because you don't make jokes about your wife or your husband. You don't refer to your husband as just another one of your children. You love your spouse and you respect your spouse and talk highly about them in front of others. You're not complaining about your kids and what a burden they are and how they are preventing you from doing the things in life that you really want to be doing. We seem odd because we have this eternal perspective with suffering and tragedy. We are quick to offer prayer to those who are hurting. Maybe you're set apart because you're spending time defending the rights of babies still in the womb. 
Maybe you're surrounded by people at work or at home that are upset about the recent Supreme Court decision, and they don't understand why you're not. Which, to be clear, as was already noted, even after that decision, abortions still will happen in this country and in this state, and that is heartbreaking. But we remind that it is not that we don't care about women, but that we do care about all lives, including the lives of the unborn. So often we hear the excuse for abortion as if the baby would have special needs. Many in this church just came back from Johnny and Friends family retreats serving some of those families. We as a church want to continue to to reach out and help and encourage families affected by disability. We want to support young families we continue to contribute to the Pregnancy Resource Center. Many in this church have adopted, maybe some who would have otherwise been aborted. Others have helped with contributing to the cost of adoption. To the world, we will stand out and seem odd when we defend all life, even the life of the not yet born. Holiness means separated from the world and set apart for God. If we trust God and his sovereignty in our justification, that he caused us to be born again, then do we also trust God and his sovereignty in our sanctification? That we can approach the things of life with a response that is holy because we recognize that it all comes from God. In his book called Holiness, J.C. Ryle listed out 12 descriptions of a holy person I won't list all of them, but one in particular said, A holy man will follow after purity of heart. He will dread all filthiness and uncleanness of spirit and seek to avoid all things that might draw him into it. He knows his own heart is like tinder and will diligently keep clear of the sparks of temptation. Regarding holiness, J.I. Packer said, Holiness has to do with my heart. He said, So asceticism as such, voluntary abstinences, routines of self-deprivation, and grueling, grueling austerity is not the same thing as holiness. Though some forms of asceticism may well find a place in a holy person's life. Nor is formalism and a sense of outward conformity in word and deed to the standards God has set, anything like holiness, though assuredly there is no holiness without such conformity. Nor is legalism, in the sense of doing things to earn God's favor or to earn more of it, more of it than, has already, than one has already, to be regarded as holiness. Holiness is always the saved sinner's response of gratitude for grace received. Holiness has to do with our hearts. If we are to be set apart from the culture, then doesn't it make sense that we as Christians will feel like we don't fit into the culture? As our society is growing more and more anti-Christian, more and more anti-God, 
we as followers of Jesus are going to feel more and more odd and out of place. We will be set apart. Holiness is a call to live out what God has already worked into us and now let it work out of us. Obedience is a command to be holy out of a relationship of those of whose we are. We love God. We are his children. And we respond to this by, in love, being obedient. Don't go back. Don't look back, but look forward. Once in an interview, Jerry Bridges was asked, if Christians are already declared righteous in Christ, why should they pursue personal holiness? Jerry Bridges responded, the short answer is that God commands it. As he has said in 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. But God wants us to want to do what we ought to do. And it is gratitude for what he has done for us through Christ in forgiving our sins and giving us Christ's own perfect righteousness that should cause us to want to do what we ought to do. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. John Owen once said, if the word does not dwell with power in us, it will not pass with power from us. How do we take this seriously? We take his word seriously. We take reading his word seriously. We take studying his word seriously. John Owen personified this truth in his personal life and public ministry. For years, he carried the message of Jesus Christ into the trenches of a culture as chaotic as our own while simultaneously dealing with the death of his wife and all 11 of his children. John Owen was no ivory tower theologian, but rather a zealous pastor who worked to the brink of exhaustion to further the work of the reformers. He is remembered for shining gospel light into the spiritually dark arenas of politics and academia. And his love of scripture was clearly and forcefully articulated from the variety of pulpits into which God called him. I fear that personal holiness is not a priority for for many within the church. Too many are too concerned with worldly pleasures, with the the latest trend. The holiness that Peter speaks of is to permeate our entire being. It is to be reflective of who we are, how we think, what we do, what we say. If you are in Christ, God has already set you apart even while your status as his holy child becomes more evident as you work with the Spirit to put sin to death. 
Today, focus on being holy with your thoughts. Asking God to make your mind pure and to help you stay away from sinful thinking. Not just sinful doing, but sinful thinking too. We were saved that we might be holy. And holiness is a call to live out what God has already worked into us. So now let it work out of us. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We are so thankful for your grace and mercy. We confess that we far too often fall way too far short of your commands. And we also confess that we are too often not bothered by that. Help us to take your word seriously. Help us to pursue holiness. Not with a grumbling heart or with a checklist mentality. But with a heart that values our relationship with you. That is so in awe of salvation that we serve you with joy and praise. Father, you are a holy God. And we desire to be holy too. Set apart unto you and living our lives in a manner that is worthy of you and pleasing to you. Convict us of our unrighteousness. Pluck the sin, the things of this world that rob our affections. Help us to live in godly holiness all the days of our lives, clothed in Christ's righteousness and walking in godly love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.